Welcome back to Australia's longest-running Doctor Who podcast, 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And we are back from our little hiatus, fully inoculated. And just like John Barrowman at full mast, we're ready to hit you on the shoulders with our latest audio musings. And as Wayne Peters from Mark's mountainist homeland said... I've just discovered your podcast and I love it. I've tried many Who podcasts over the years and always found them wanting. I should have realised that a bunch of straight-talking Aussies would be just the ticket. Keep up the good work, chaps. And in this episode, we are delighted to talk to the team behind the fantastic Black Bull Remembered, which revisits the halcyon days of Doctor Who exhibitions with reminiscences from both fans and staff alike. But before we do that, and like we did for Stephen Moffat, let's take a moment to reflect, nay, lament, the departure of Doctor 13 and her showrunner. We are back. Hi, Rob. How are you tonight? Exceedingly well. Thank you very much for asking. What's been happening? <laughs> Not much, actually. We're in lockdown, to be frank. Again. Again but uh, that's all right. We're both fully inoculated, as I mentioned before. Isn't that right, mate? That's right. And if uh, we do eight lockdowns, we get the ninth one free. <laughs> and as I said to my teammates in my our Microsoft Teams chat, so fully inoculated am I that I strutted up and down my main street naked, screaming, I'm protected, I'm protected. Funnily enough, they kicked me out of the chat. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway. I'm not surprised about that, but uh, <laughs> we've been away for a couple of... feels like an eternity, but uh, we've been away for a couple of weeks, and while we were away, something momentous happened, you would say, Rob? Well, look, the BBC had to fill our absence in by actually getting rid of, or announcing the departure of, uh, Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker from their uh, respective roles uh, at the head of uh, our titular uh, p- favourite show. And now for our next topic. <laughs> no, Mark. Look, lots and lots and lots of podcasts have uh, opined on this uh, important uh, news and departures. So we thought we'd have a, a brief chat. I mean, you know, we're, I don't think we're going to go into the the depth that uh, everyone else has. Uh, you can find those particular podcasts where you want. But you know, we might as well say something about it, shouldn't we, Mark? That's right. Why don't you go first? Me. <laughs> <Why don't laughs> I go first? I'll go first. That's all right. I, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> this is how seriously we're going to take this. Is this right? No. I don't think it's actually a, a big surprise. Uh, when I mean, look, when you look at the run for all the other modern doctors, uh, they're not going to stay for an extensive period of time, really. I mean, uh, Whitaker has been, was cast in 2017. They've somehow managed to eke out, you know, only three seasons. I, I just do not understand how in the modern day of modern TV making, they're only able to just, you know, it's 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 remarkable how little product the production team is has been able to to pump out. Yes, COVID got in the way. I understand that. That's fair enough. But even there, we were looking at one less episode per year, um, and now we're looking at what is it? Six linked, it appears, episodes going forward, and then 
a trio of specials. But uh, as to the departure, uh, I didn't think it was unexpected. Um, I don't necessarily think all the way through... Or, uh, my impression at the start when Chibnall was hired was I, I think he was a reluctant hire. Um, and I think, you know, this three or th- four years that he's been uh, in the role, I think that's enough for him. Um, and I suppose when um, the, 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 the showrunner and the lead actor are a package deal, when one goes, they both go. So, um, yeah, they're, they're just both going. Simple as that. I will say that the, the news of their departure has been relatively muted um, of course, you know, you, you go on social media, which is not the real world, people. Uh, there, are, there are on both sides. I don't, I don't know how fandom became so divided. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a minority of people screaming at each other, I suppose, on social media. Um, it, it seems relatively muted, which, again, given the length the to- of time the show has been on telly, um, is not surprising. It is just another TV show that has, you know, got a, has had a, a, a remarkable run, but it's not must-view television, in my opinion. Uh, and I think the coverage of her departure, Jodie Whittaker's departure and Chimmel's departure, uh, says something about the show's place in TV land, in the UK at least. Yeah, it's sort of like, oh yeah, here we go again, almost sort of thing, isn't it, really? Yes, and... Like you, I sort of read it on Twitter and um, you know, and I, and I gather that some fans are more upset that uh, Jodie's leaving more than uh, Chippers. But my reaction was, well, I was pretty nonplussed about it, about both of them going. It's a mixture on my part of, like, it was expected and I'm not really bothered, which for me is a reaction that I never really sort of had before when I hear the news of a doctor leaving the role. And I've been around long enough to remember the various ways they've left, either by their own choice or... Well, they were shoved out the door, more or less, a lot of them. The ousted, that's the word, isn't it, really? But um, probably my nonplussment, if that's a word was probably down to the fact I only watched a couple of episodes anyway, including one of the worst ones ever made in the history of the program. Chibnall had the unique opportunity to reinvent the series, and his first series, there was no kisses to the past, which is what it needed, but the stories were lacklustre, and I'm only saying that from the three or four I saw that first year. In his second year, to try and drive some interest, he's turned the fan wank dial up to 11, and as a result, sort of split fandom, but even worse, he actually, I think he bored the audience and bewildered them as well with the timeless children. So, and in the past, we've been lucky where actors have risen above the material they've been given. And I I think of Troughton and and Davison and Campaldi that come to mind. But the 13th Doctor reminds me of what's under Scrooge McDuck Christmas tree. No presents. (laughs) Anyway, what should the BBC do, Rob? Essentially now a cleanish slate to, to begin with. And let's be honest, it's not in the best of states at the moment, is it really? So what would you do if you had the power to reinvigorate and reset the show? Or does it need a rest? <sighs> Putting aside the possibility that it does need a rest, you still have to factor in maybe in a few years' time, all right, they'll bring it back because it is it has a, an immense history. You know, it is a good earner mm. or has been a good earner for the BBC. I mean, especially in sales around the world. Putting aside mm. sort of the fading merchandise, as, as Aaron so eloquently discussed in our in a previous episode, an earlier episode this year. Um, it, it's hard to say. I think I think the model that they're using to make it is, is, is broken. I think the template that they've had in place since 2005 needs to be radically changed up. I think they need... I mean, for instance, Chibnall, there was the promise of a, of a, 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 a writer's room, that there were more voices that were going to be part of the writing process, and that never eventuated. Whether that was you know, just rumour or, you know, it was an aspiration that Chibnall voiced once and it just sort of faded away under the, you know, the pressures of making the program. For me, the show has lost 
a lot of its shine, a lot of its inventiveness, um, a lot of its spark that, that made it compelling viewing. Um, and that's not, I'm not talking about nostalgia for the, the 63 to 89 series. I'm talking about uh, if for a period of time, 10 or 15 years ago, or 10 years ago, the show was at the center of you know, mainstream popularity, and it has lost that. So if you're going to reinvent the show, I don't think that you have to wipe the slate clean as such and, and kill 60 years worth of, of history and start again. You just have to tell better stories. Mm. Um, look, and it's the easiest thing in the world for me to say that, all right? Because it must be immensely difficult to get scripts together, to get a production team working you know, in the same groove as everyone else and, and, and heading in the same direction. But at the moment, from what I have seen... The stories are lackluster. I did. I mean, the the, the most recent uh, episode that went out, um, Revolution of the Daleks, was good. If someone is standing there and arguing that it was great television, then they are clearly have a very narrow view on what modern television is doing today. Okay, it was, you know, blandish. It was relatively stale. It wasn't awful, but then it wasn't compelling. It wasn't great. You need to have stories that grip a mainstream audience. Tenant's era, we, we, everyone turns around and goes, look, Tenant is the most popular. Tenant is a bit of a curse for the show, mm. in my regard. The, the, the way he portrayed the role, they've tried to pick the eyes out of Tenant's performance and give the succeeding actors some of his ticks, but it just comes across as a, as a, you know, a carbon copy of a carbon copy. Correct. They try to do Tenant, but mm. it only comes up across as Tenant light. You need to have... Uh, a, an actor who is invested in on the, in the role and a showrunner who is prepared, I think, to tell gripping stories. Whether they are spooky stories, whether they are suspenseful stories, whether they are thriller stories, tension, drama, fear, horror lies at the heart of successful Doctor Who. You can leaven that out with comedy or lighter moments or quirky characterization. yes, but what we've been doled up over the last, not just, you know, through the Chibnall era, but through part of uh, the Capaldi era as well, where Moffat had just, you know, it just felt like sometimes he had lost interest or he had been there too long and was looking for the exit, you know. But any new production team that comes along, whether that is the BBC or whether that is the BBC working in production with American, you know, co-production with American money or whether the BBC says, look, we don't know how to make this anymore. Here, here you go. You do it. They need to capture that mainstream audience again. The Timeless Children is a debacle. Okay, it is a debacle in lesser terms of the show's history and what it does, but it's a debacle in terms of appealing to a mainstream audience. If you are resetting the Doctor's origins, that's one thing, okay? But then if you spend X number of minutes having the Master exposit to the Doctor about her own history, how in God's name is that meant to hold the attention of the audience? How? Where is the excitement in that? Where is the mystery in that? Where is the thrill, the scares, the horror? It's not there, Mark. So no. going forward, whichever production team comes on board, whether it's after arrest, co-production money from the US or whatever, they need to target with an actor who has presence, an actor who has gravitas, an actor who is willing to throw themselves wholeheartedly in the role, and a showrunner and a production team that is willing to go mainstream. I've got some bullet points here in terms of if I had some authority. Uh, what would I do? And some of those points you've actually just mentioned, but uh, I mean, casting, absolutely get it right this time. It's either going to be male or female. And it, it is the funny thing, right? It's got to be the best actor for the role and not to tick a box in terms of gender or race or anything like that. It's the best actor for the role. And I don't mind if it's if it's a male or a female. Like Really, the BBC's just got to stop saying, 
we've got to get another David Tennant type doctor. Forget that. Go for somebody who can actually be better than David Tennant. That's what they should be aiming for. I mean, to me, Jodie Whittaker's is David Tennant in drag, and it just doesn't do anything for me. So look, they've got to get the casting right this time. Consistency every year. If you're serious about keeping the property, whether you can handle six to eight episodes a year, just get the episodes out same time every year as much as you can and stop having the breaks. It doesn't build that audience loyalty that's go off and do other things like you said before some really good solid scripts not preachy remember you used to watch he-man in the 80s and at the end of each episode he used to say right kids drugs are bad don't do drugs what did we learn today kids we don't need that just tell a decent story no niche continuity references like that bloody episode did the timeless children and a showrunner who has the capacity and the energy to deliver year on in and year out with the show really now at a sort of low ebb now is really the time to try something completely different. And that's not just down to casting, it's just down to nearly everything, I think. Yeah, look, I didn't have a problem when Jodie Whittaker was cast. I thought that it was an inevitability where the show was heading. That's fine. And I don't particularly have a problem with Chris Chibnall as such. You know, again, doing, making television is, you know, bloody hard. It is very hard. I don't know why they persist with the showrunner model where it's one person at the at the top and the burden falls on them. I do not know what the one, two or three producers who work on the show actually do. It seems that the showrunner, you know, is forced to carry the burden of not only writing their own stories, but, you know, husbanding other people's stories to fruition. It just seems like an impossible task. And, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, sometimes they just buckle under the pressure and... Um, what we get on the screen is not as considered, on the script at least, is not as considered as it could be. Um, so I feel, you know, I, I, again, I sensed a reluctance on Chibnall's part when he came on board, but, you know, he did the right thing, I suppose, and, and he took up the role, uh, and, and we, we are where we are. I, I, again, I never had a problem with Jodie Whittaker's casting. I do have a problem, in a sense, with her performance. You are right, it is, well, I won't say it's tenant and Drag, it's tenant Light, and I don't know whether that's her unfamiliarity with the show coming on board or... I mean, we all know that I think Matt Smith watched some Troughton stories and sort of picked up from that. Uh, I believe that Jodie Whittaker didn't want to watch any earlier episodes, which is fine, but, you know, you need to bring something more than what is on the page. And I don't necessarily think that she always did that. I think that Jodie Whittaker is a fine actress. I mean, she, you know, she, she, she starred alongside Eccleston in, in the production of Antigone, uh, and that is a heavy-duty role. You know, I did a bit, I did a bit of in preparation for this surprisingly, a reading up on it, and and that that sort of role demands you know a strong actress. Um, I just think that she was poorly served in her in in some of the stories and the scripting that she got. I think she was overshadowed by uh, the character of Graham, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Which says that you can actually go get above the material, that, you know, rise above the material that you got. Um, Look, I don't want to bash them, okay? Television making is hard. Given the, the, the fragmentation in the audience, the ratings were, you know, where the rest of, the, the rest of um, television is at the moment, I just think that in concert with, you know, where the, sh the direction the show was being taken um, and the fact that it's been on air or been back for 16 years means that it really does either need a, a longish or a medium, you know, short to medium term rest or, um, you know, fresh, completely fresh blood. People who are alien to the British television industry, perhaps. Mm. So what do you think the legacy of the Chibnall era is going to be? Um, well, you know what, Mark? I mean, every era has its supporters and every era has its detractors. I think in the main, um, the the view of the you know the, the, of fandom 
will probably be it'll be split but i think it'll be sort of weighted towards being generally happy with what they got i mean look there's vocal minorities on both sides they're not they're not my doctor disgraces of humanity and the people who would not countenance on the other side any negative commentary on the the way that you know the product where the production team was taking the show all right discount those people and i think in the main i think you know fandom was reasonably happy with what they got i mean you could go back to the, to the 80s and you, you know what fandom did to the mccoy era and the colin baker era they tore them apart yeah mm. i don't think we're in that particular situation with regards to the chibnall and whittaker era era i i wish that they'd taken a different approach especially chibnall uh, i think if any criticism needs to fall on anyone's shoulders on on the scales it probably weighs a little bit more on chibnall than whittaker but overall, I think, you know, fandom and the general, you know, watching audience were more or less happy, you know, it's a 60-40 split um, with, you know, how it all turned out. And look, you know, we're only two thirds of the way through. There's this six part series plus the three specials that are apparently, you know, either nearing completion or, or nearing completion. So we still don't know uh, what could be what's on the table in terms of quality of story. I mean, you know, the two or three years into it. Who knows what they can bring having that experience and those that understanding of, you know, how to make Doctor Who. It is bloody hard. Look, I mean, from my own personal perspective, it's the first time in, since 1978 where I actually have stopped watching the program. Sort of haven't been engaged with it. It'd be sad as to think that the only outcome of the year would be, well, he'd only be remembered for casting a woman in the lead role and that's it. Graham was a great character. From what I saw, again, he fell into the trap of just pulling doctors out of their asses, a fugitive doctor and that sort of stuff. I think it's going to be difficult one for me look mark i think if you if you gave yourself a chance and 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 maybe come back in a little while and and just watch those episodes no pressure not one after the other one every week i think you'd probably get some measure of entertainment out of them so if you had to recommend me one to go away and watch just one that you said look i think this is a highlight of the era and the performance and everything like that which one would you recommend i'll go away and watch it to my shame i can't remember the title but it's the one with the frog at the end was that it takes you away you try to like <laughs> sabotage this experiment already i heard that's really shit <laughs> <laughs> i enjoyed it but i mean the yeah. haunting of uh, is it villa diodati the one with uh, Byron and Shelley, the one that's set around the the, the uh, you know the writing of uh, Frankenstein. That one, I think, Mark, uh, is where the show does um, make best use of its elements, has a spooky atmosphere and some interesting performances and some really ad- arresting visuals. I think uh, I think Whitaker actually uh, rises to the level of the script. I think it's I think it's a really good episode. I think that is the one that you should have a look at and the one with the frog at the end. I'll go in with open eyes. Look, anything could happen, Rob. I've been sitting down watching that season 24 box set and actually really enjoying it. So crazy things are happening at the moment, Rob. Oh, dear. What's going on, Mark? Help me. <laughs> and just briefly before we sign off on this particular topic, um, you probably know more British actors than what I do. Uh, do you have a preference for the lead role? It's going to be interesting, though, because the BBC will think, well, we can't go old because... You know, Peter Capaldi didn't work. That's probably what they're thinking. So I'd love to see somebody like, and it's a bit boring, really, like a Buckle Sheen in that role. Mm. Even a female I'd be open to, as I said, like a, a Ruth Wilson. I don't know. Usually, like, I have an idea going in. It could potentially be a what I'd like to see. But apart from those two, there's nothing really obvious that sort of stick out. Can I just ask the question before we wrap it up here? The assumption is that the show will come back. I'm assuming that there's going to be a 60th anniversary story, but there's an assumption that the show will come back, or that the BBC has indicated that the show will come back after these three specials. Um, 
why would people be assuming that the BBC is telling the truth? I mean, we all know what happened in the, in, in the 80s when the BBC said that Doctor Who has been cancelled. There was, you know, near rioting in the streets. There were people smashing televisions in with hammers and getting photographed doing it. Why would the BBC invite uh, that sort of rancor today? They would just say, oh, yeah, you know, Jodie's going out on a high. Uh, we'll look at, uh, you know, and Doctor Who will be back. But that's, what is it, it's 2021? That's two, two and a half, three years away. Why do we think Doctor Who would be back? I I'm not entirely sure that that's, you know, 100% a certainty. I think it will be back, but rumours at the moment, the co-production, isn't it, with America, potentially again, like they, they learned their lesson the last time, didn't they? Some of that filthy Netflix uh, money or Amazon money or uh, whoever, whoever there's the latest streaming job. Probably uh, WWE Network or something on like that, probably. <laughs> Stars. <laughs> Stars. Yeah, that, uh, what was that Miracle Day? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't trust anything that comes out of their mouth, to be perfectly honest with you. The rumour is that um, she starts regenerating or it's going to be like to be continued and they've taken body shots of like a male and a female just in case. Ah. Exactly. Who knows, Mark? Who knows? And on that bombshell, we'll move on to our main topic. In 2020, Blackpool Remembered was released, a digital publication which charted the life of the original Doctor Who exhibition on Blackpool's Golden Mile, which ran from 1974 to 1985. Blackpool Remembered provided a much-needed slice of nostalgia and yearning for the good old days, especially during the events of last year. Through interviews with key staff and also fan contributions, it detailed how the exhibition was created and changed from year to year as a new season of Doctor Who provided new exhibits and reasons to visit. I praised this publication last year during our 2020 Christmas party. And to celebrate the release of their new publication, Blackpool Revisited, I'm delighted to be joined by John and Alex, the team behind this great project. Welcome both of you to 42 to Doomsday. Thanks for inviting us. Absolute pleasure. So before we sort of crack on to the genesis and, and how you sort of curated the book, I just want to talk to you guys about uh, when did you both become fans of the program and what were your favourite eras of the show that you grew up with and, and stories and go back to the old days and remember when you went from a Doctor Who watcher to a Doctor Who fan. John, do you want to start first? <laughs> make sense in a minute basically I, I sort of was born right at the end of the 60s and um the, as you mentioned the exhibition opened in 1974 and for me i guess the two things were always quite aligned my family always went to blackpool from watching the show i think my, my earliest memory must have been the sea devils so perch we were certainly something in my infancy that i was familiar with uh and his last sort of few stories i, I remember sort of bits of them Paul visiting the exhibition the first time when I was about five and seeing some of those monsters particularly things like the Daleks in real life that, that's when um, I certainly became a fan rather than a watcher and Alex I, I think for me I, I was born at the end of the 70s so my era was really the Peter Davison era and I've always had a soft spot for 80s who I have vague recollections of the end of Tom Baker's tenure which could have also been some of the repeats that they we ran back then but I don't ever remember being a watcher I just remember being a fan I think the earliest stories I can remember sort of like Mordred Undead that kind of era and then when I saw Resurrection of the Daleks I just became obsessed with Daleks um, and I went to the Blackpool exhibition for the first and only time in 1985 when I was seven years old which was just sort of hot on the heels of season 22 and Revelation of the Daleks and I always remember that after that episode finished there came up an advert for the exhibitions in Blackpool and Longleat so I demanded that my parents took me 
to one of them and the nearest one to us was uh, was Blackpool. So that was a really, at the height of my fandom at that young age, visiting the exhibition and sort of being able to enter the Doctor's world for real, see Daleks up close, was just, it was mind-blowing and it stayed with me ever since. I was lucky as well to, to go to the exhibition in the late uh, 70s. And the thing that I remember, apart from being scared out of my pants, was uh, actually going down those stairs. All the sounds and the lights sort of blaring at you as you descended into cavern, as it were. The stairs are what everybody remembers. Made a big impression on a whole generation or two, I think. Yeah, we've definitely got to think about stairs. And the staircase is still there. That's the uh, interesting thing. I was lucky because um, I had relatives living in Blackpool. So my uncle and my auntie, my cousin, who was a uh, very similar age to me, ran a B&B literally just around the corner from the exhibition. So I'd go up uh, with my grandmother and we'd stay uh, at their bed and breakfast. And that would be sort of extra visits to the exhibition. Very first time, I was a bit like you, Mark. I, I was I was scared. I got as far as uh, the, the ticket booth. My granddad paid and then got to the top of those stairs and looked down. I'd refused to go down those stairs, turned around and ran back uh, along the prom. And it was another 12 months before I actually set the foot down them. So there was a bit of a delay in terms of my first experience, but then it was every single year up until 1984. And then in 1985, which was the final year that the exhibition was open, uh, we actually went abroad that year and nobody knew the exhibition was going to close. So I've got a sort of uh, a strange exhibition shaped hole in my life because I never went back <laughs> in that final year you know but that's the year that Alex went. It was quite an impressionable age for me even though I was only seven I have such vivid memories of it still I think walking up so I'd obviously pestered my parents for mm -hmm. ages to go so we'd arrange this summer holiday in Blackpool. We went twice in the same week I always oh. remember the first time walking up the, uh, the seafront up the Golden Mile and you had the sort of smell of fish and chips and donuts and candy floss and sea drifting through the air the sound of the seagulls the pleasure beach all the noise of the rides and in the middle of all that all of a sudden I remember hearing the Doctor Who theme tune just gradually emerging and getting louder until we mm. saw the exhibition with a real Dalek outside of it. And I think all my dreams had come true once in that moment. And don't forget the trams as well. I used to go to the Blackpool with my uh, grandparents and the last time I went with them before we migrated over, obviously walking down the Golden Mile, just what you were talking about then, the arcades and everything like that, my brother sort of running off and then finding him later. The Doctor Who exhibition there, I remember I went there with my nana and my nana said, no, you'll be fine by yourself, Mark. So I went down the stairs and as I said, got scared. And I think I was only in there for five minutes whizzing around because I was actually so terrified of the of all the different sound effects blaring at me in the and the darkness and in some of the exhibits as well. But the memories of Blackpool that are very strong from my youth because that's where we used to go really, essentially for holidays. Were there any examples of other exhibitions devoted to TV programs and, and movies? Do you know? The next book we talk about a uh, a couple of things. Um, so that in 1977. Um, there was a new Golden Mile Centre that opened uh, right right along the prom, right central in the middle of Blackpool exhibition, which was called Space City. This was in direct competition with the Doctor Who exhibition, obviously. It had the gimmick of a travel tube, which effectively was the escalator up to the first floor of the building. And then in 1978, the BBC opened a second exhibition. And in that one, there were things like props from the goodies and It's a Knockout and Blake Seven. I know Blackpool seems to have a bit of a tradition when it comes to exhibitions uh, per se. 
So, you know, although Doctor Who was the one that lasted the longest in the town, there have been others that have popped up and lasted a little while. I know the Jerry Anderson one moved to Pleasure Beach in the 80s and then eventually it actually uh, got housed in Alton Towers, which is just down the road from me. So, uh, yeah, been, there have been other exhibitions in, in Blackpool. I think up okay. until that point, though, there hadn't really been any ex- exhibitions from TV stuff were kind of temporary or short-lived. Now, I really think the Doctor Who one was the first sort of long-term exhibition because when you think about it, how many TV shows really warranted their own exhibition and how many have had them before or since? And especially when you've got um, new props, refresh the, uh, the the exhibits, as it were, every every year. Probably also helped to its longevity as well. And and also the show was at its probably peak back then too, wasn't it, really, when the exhibition was um, was underway? Yeah, I've always regarded the, the Tom Baker era as the sort of definitive era of the show and I think that was obviously opened just as he started. So it was just a, a golden era for the show in so many ways. Can you sort of talk us through what the rationale was behind creating a Doctor mm-hmm. Who exhibition and why Blackpool was located? There had been a couple of sort of 1960s exhibitions um, and this was the, the BBC's attempt to kind of show off their, their skills in visual effects. So Doctor Who was a, a part of that Science Museum exhibition just proved so popular that it ran um, for more months than they expected and then it moved up to Middlesbrough Town Hall so uh, sort of exhibits a couple of Daleks that had been built and the TARDIS console all specifically built for those exhibitions in Middlesbrough it was uh, I I love the fact that it was downstairs in the crypt and uh, you know you can just imagine the the feeling a bit similar to Blackpool of of going down the stairs into that kind of same eerie kind of space you know and Blackpool was chosen simply because it had one of the longest seasons obviously Blackpool the season starts in in at Easter time in March uh, mm. But then, of course, because of the illuminations, it's much longer than any other sort of seaside resort. So typically the Doctor Exhibition would stay open right until the end of October. So Law Martin and the exhibition team felt that that was a great reason to choose Blackpool alongside Longley, which is obviously the sister exhibition, which was down in Wiltshire. So how, how important was Law Martin in terms of the uh, the actual getting the exhibition established and also keeping it going throughout those years? Yeah, Law worked for the, the exhibitions unit and in the first book, who was one of uh, Lorne's assistants. Um, later on in the 80s, she sort of took over, really, from, from Lorne's role. Um, we've been really lucky this time because the a revised edition, it's a brand new uh, publication which um, has gone back to Blackpool and looked at some things a little bit more deeply. And within that, Lorne Martin has, has sort of looked at the second book. Um, he loved the first one, and he's, he's written the foreword to uh, Blackpool Revisited. So we're really, really honoured to have got that sort of... Um, that golden tick from him saying you're doing a good job boys um we're really pleased to have lawn on board lawn's still working as far as i know in exhibitions with martin wilkie so martin again his dad was bernard wilkie who was responsible for a lot of the visual effects on doctor who has got his own exhibitions company and they've been involved involved in things like the the cardiff exhibition and the london experiences that have been more recent exhibitions if you like one thing when i was reading the book was that uh, there seemed to be a high level of interaction between the publicity uh departments and and obviously the exhibition staff and, and the production teams obviously with john nathan turner took over as the producer do you think that um, with his publicity skills, do you think he was able to give Blackpool a bit of a boost or was it, it didn't really matter? It was just actually doing really well by itself in terms of its publicity and um, and how it was marketing itself? I think certainly by 1985, when John uh, visited uh, with Colin Baker, and, um, they, came, they went there to do a, um, a BBC charity event called Children in Need. And it was right at the end of the season um, when when the exhibition was going to close. So I'm not quite sure how much John knew when he, when he went 
went to Blackpool about the fact that this place was not going to be open for much longer. But certainly during his tenure, I mean, he would check check things off. We spoke to Julie last time in the first book and she said that, you know, there was a lot of communication between us down to the filming of new episodes. Julie would get a sort of heads up on the kind of props uh, and costumes that were going to appear in the in the next season. So she'd sort of uh, she'd have first pick, if you like, on the ones that she wanted to go to Blackpool and Longleaf. I don't know if you've got anything to add about that, uh, Alex. With the first book, with, with Blackpool Remembered, it was finding Julie and getting her on board was a, a real crowning moment for us because she was really managing the exhibition for a large part of its life. Um, so it was it was excellent being able to ask her those questions directly and have a an honest answer about what how things were in those days and uh, and how it all came together. Doctor Who's fans are pretty good in tracking things down, whether it's missing episodes or <laughs> anything like that. In terms of getting former staff, how hard is it to track them down and, and getting to contribute to the book? We were in luck with Julie. I think John had got a photograph from, was it the making of a television series that had a photo of Julie with JNT? So we had her name, um, mm. and I'd noticed, because there's an excellent Facebook group called Blackpool and Longley Exhibitions, which is obviously, as you can imagine, dedicated to those exhibitions and I'd, I'd seen Julie Jones post in there um, so I think I tracked her down that way I thought well she's got a Cyberman in a profile photo there can't be many other Julie Joneses with a Cyberman <laughs> in the in the Facebook profile so I dropped her a message mm. said I'm working with John on this book um, we'd love to talk to you about it how do you feel thinking you know obviously for her this is something that was 30 or odd years in the past but yeah she's been really uh, really really on board with it it was great really good and in terms of why the book did you feel there's a bit of a gap in the market or just that the the blackpool exhibitions or doctor who exhibitions in general hadn't been covered in the way they should and also how did you source the contributions there's a lot of fan contributions in there which is fantastic and how did you go about sourcing them and the amount that you received did that surprise you at all i'd wanted to write something about blackpool for literally about 35 years to be honest like yourself mark and, and alex is similar to there's something in the, that visit when it just kind of stays with you it sticks with you and mm. i was conscious that i had not really seen anything about the exhibition at all apart from you know occasionally doctor who weekly or doctor who monthly would would write an exhibition report and then in the 90s time frame the book came out and there was a tiny little picture of the opening and i thought gosh i'd love to see more of that i'd love to see more photographs of other people that were there i'd got my own photo album in the front of it i'd sort of uh, scribbled a floor plan and each year i'd made up this sort of code to say what was in each of the display cases over a number of years and then i came across um an, an attempt to write a sort of what i was imagining in my head which ended up being alex's book i downloaded it 10 years ago and when lockdown hit i was just sort of scratching around for things to do to keep myself busy and i just went back to this idea of uh, creating a kind of a scrapbook of the exhibition, starting with my own things, but then trying to, trying to seek other people. Alex was one of those people that I got in contact with, and I couldn't believe it when he when he uh, messaged me back and he said, you know, I'd, I've already done this book, and it was the same book that I'd downloaded ten years before. It was so strange. <laughs> so that that immediately put us, you know, uh, in, in a really good place uh, for the friendship that we've now got. And what was it like from your point of view, Alex? Similar. It was one of those things that was clearly just meant to be, like you said. I I wrote Who, Where and When, my sort of mini personal memoir of growing up with the show back in 2011. And that included several pages about my experience of the Blackpool exhibition. And like yourself, John, I always bought new books and things like Time Frame or the 80s book by David Howe and all the others. Always a little bit disappointed to see nothing but a footnote about Blackpool. 
and nobody was covering it. So in, in my book, I tried to do a little bit more than that. And then another project that I got going with was I decided I wanted to create a floor plan for the year that I went to try and document everything that I saw or that I can't remember seeing. Uh, but back then, you know, there was very little on the internet about it. There was a handful of uh, tiny photographs on the Richard Who website. And I think that was about it. And in my online research, I found a couple of floor plan drawings, one of which was John's, which I filed, saved. And then that project I got as far as I could with. I thought, okay, I can't find any more information about the exhibition. So I know it's not right, but it's as good as it can be. And then I think it was probably just before lockdown hit. Because as as you know, as a Doctor Who fan, your interest in the show and all the things associated with it comes and goes in waves. At some point, I got back into the idea of this floor plan project. I think it was after I joined this Blackpool group on, on Facebook and seen all these hundreds of photographs that suddenly jogged my memory I thought yes I can I can finish the floor plan with these so I was still working on that when John's email landed and it, it was just meant to be how hard is it to, was it to recreate those floor plans so from your memory then you started going one step further actually recreating a lot of the floor plans from each of the years how, how do you do that Are there any sort of existing documentation from the exhibitions at all or just basically this is all what people can remember it was difficult because there was a few inaccurate floor plans floating around the internet and we were working on it constantly we had a couple of other fans on board who were giving us their memories and feedback and um, eventually one of them just turned up and said oh i've actually got a real floor plan here's a photo of it so me and john hit the floor that day uh, because we suddenly got an actual floor plan so all those little angles and corners that we couldn't quite remember or we, we suddenly were able to make the floor plan itself spot on then the idea of okay well now we've got the floor plan let's do it for every single year although that has its own challenges because obviously the the exhibits changed more than once throughout the years so we always knew it was always going to be a sort of a generalization for each year all the documentation related into the exhibitions that's a sort of with fans doctor who magazine for example they can go to a bbc library somewhere and finally have this documentation and production files is anything similar for the exhibitions do you know only what we both sort of individually collected i'd, I'd sort of kept mm. uh, a folder on my computer for years and alex had done something similar and obviously the facebook group was uh, one way of of talking to people uh, and getting them to um, share their memories write their stories you know allow us to use the photographs we were really lucky with richard lever for example i mean richard's just one day said i've got about 400 photographs stretching from the 70s to the 80s i'm going to put it on dropbox now so you can imagine um that was a good day it was that kind of generosity really you know where stuart glazebrook who's one, one of the key people who used to volunteer at the exhibition used to dress up variously as you know bell al and uh, voc robots and all sorts of things he's not on the uh, on social media he's not on the internet or anything but i've got a phone number for him and called him and from that he sent me some original uh, exhibition reports he'd written from the 1970s uh, fanzines that articles had been uh, featured in that he'd written about the exhibition which I was able to scan and use in the book uh, and Stuart had also two of those plans that we looked at were Stuart's hand-drawn plans from 1975 and 1976 and then literally uh, I think it was the week before we were about to to publish um, last August we got another set of plans so we'd already got a lighting plan a proper floor plan from 1979 which had all the new exhibits that were going to be in all the different display cases so that was just another we used to get these days didn't we Alex these days when we get emails and it was like these little bits of treasure oh, it's um, crazy it was it was lovely you know we'd be we'd be looking and then it would come along like three at once so we would have weeks where we'd have nothing and then suddenly we 
we'll have a day when we get three amazing pieces of uh, memorabilia, uh, old signs from the exhibition, floor plans, etc., which carried on that sort of passion and that, that our eagerness to get it, to get the job done, really. And with every contribution that came through, with with every photograph or, or the different floor plans, it was it was like closed doors in your memory reopening all of a sudden. These things mm-hmm. that you had a sort of vague, dusty memory of suddenly became really vivid and clear, which was, you know, that, that was amazing because it literally did feel like you were stepping back in time. It's one of those rare occasions where you think you finished a project or you're 90% there and you get more material go right back to the drawing board because <laughs> you've actually got more stuff to, to include. You actually sort of don't mind that sort of uh, situation, do you really? No, and that was the good thing about having the book online to download because, you know, mm. once it had been released, the first couple of weeks of September, we had more um, sort of details. People were, were correcting the floor plans a little bit. We're still not sure how many mandrels were in there in the 1980s. We will never fix that one. You know, and so we had we had all these uh, extra stories. And we, although we had a bit of space away from it, so I'd say um, until the new year this year, we'd finished the first book. I think we both kind of missed it, and that's why we, we're going back. That's why we've written Blackpool Revisited, because there was new material that we really wanted to share, as we had done with the first one. And so we've gone from 400 pages in the first book. The second book is now over 600 pages. So altogether, wow. you know, it's just a mass of material information about Blackpool. So one of the things we wanted to do in the second book, as well as additional memories from the original exhibition, was cover the, the Latter Day exhibition by, by David Boyle, the Doctor Who Museum, which ran from 2004 to 2009. So we, we'd got two lots of, of things to focus on for, for what was clearly a second book. And I think it has ended up being much, much bigger and much wider ranging than we'd ever imagined it would be. How did you go about sourcing the fan recollection, listing through it and editing it and working out what you want to put in and what you didn't want to put in to the publication? I'm not on Facebook, so Alex did a great job of sort of going out there fishing finding people and then sort of throwing the catch over to me really and i think once we started to build a, a social media presence we had the twitter account for example people were just finding us it was amazing you know it's like the old film isn't it kevin cross the field of dreams you know you build it and they will come kind of thing it was a sense of that we felt like we'd opened the you know the blackpool exhibition doors and suddenly all these people wanted to come back down those stairs with us so, and it was just in terms of editing it and, and choosing the stories first of all I mean there was there had to be a sort of line in terms of quality so if some photographs were similar to photographs we'd already got then we were obviously going to choose the ones of better quality mm. so that was one way of sort of sifting through it but I don't think we turned anybody away in terms of a personal story because I got quite emotional reading some of the things that people were sending me it's obvious that the exhibition you know that, that little basement uh, under Blackpool Prom is really, really special to a lot of people. Um, stories of young boys who lost their dads when they were teenagers, but they have memories of going there with their father to, to, to go and see the exhibition. Like uh, like me, grandparents, spending time with your grandparents in Blackpool and mm. going there. Loads of family stories, which we just wanted to include all of, really. And so that's, that, that really was how we kind of, they found us rather than them. And then that, that's continued. And so the second book, again, has got some stories. And we don't want to go too much over the, the ground that we've already covered we've gone for slightly different stories stories that are off on a tangent so there's a story from a guy called Jamie Reese who spent time at Blackpool but also then when Langollen opened went spent a lot of time in Langollen so we've sort of stretched out there and that builds in re- really nicely because obviously Langollen was a place that David Boyle ran before he opened the museum that Alex has just mentioned so again there's a there's a th- sort of a bit of a thread through the book in terms of a timeline um, and certainly we've worked with Julie Whitfield who's 
uh, David's partner, David passed away a couple of years ago now, but she's been brilliant at providing us with photographs of, um, you know, Dapol prototype pictures, photographs of uh, the kind of people who used to visit, not just Langolan, but Blackpool as well. The second exhibition, Colin Baker appeared there. Again, the, the wealth of uh, material has just kind of popped into our inboxes and we're incredibly grateful to everybody, um, almost 90 people who've contributed to the next book. In terms of the, the exhibition, why was it closed in 1985? Was it sort of linked to the perceived downtrend in, in Doctor Who as, as being popular? Or was that the reason really why they sort of call it a day in Blackpool? I think there's a bit of both because when I went, I do remember it being pretty empty, which as a kid, I thought it was quite exciting. You got the place all to yourself. Looking back, you mm-hmm. think, okay, that's probably not great from a business point of view. So I think the show's popularity wasn't at its highest. So maybe footfall in the exhibition was declining as well. But the, the official line, I believe, was the lease on the premises was up and they didn't renew. And then the, the touring, the USA touring exhibition came along. So a lot of the stuff that had been on display in Blackpool uh, was was packed into that and off it went. And didn't some fan find the truck? Track it down, is that right? Yeah, it's rotting in some scrapyard now. It's it's really sad. The interesting thing there is we've tracked down Andrew Skilleter for this one. Um, Alex has done an interview with, with Skilleter and I'll let him tell you all about it because he gets excited about all that artist stuff. Go for it, Alex. <laughs> I think Andrew was probably my favourite Doctor Who artist. So as, a, as an illustrator myself, it was just really nice to be able to chat with him. Obviously because he designed the season poster for the final season of the original Blackpool exhibition and then he did all the um, all the backdrops and, and all the paintings on the truck sides and logo design and all the all the visuals for that touring exhibition. And and just in the last month or so, he's released a, a pack of prints and photos all from that with a, a brand new little booklet that has been written by Julie Jones. So it's almost it almost feels like we've set something off with this whole exhibitions thing, uh, which is really exciting because, like we said earlier, there was a gap. Nobody had done a book about it. There was just the odd article here and there. Um, And last year, the Telos published a a textbook about the exhibitions. It was pretty factual. I don't know. It it just feels like the right time to be be looking back and reflecting on all this stuff. So one of the other artists that we've got in the book, Ronald Binney, has done some great illustrations. And he's also looked at the way the exhibitions were designed and marketed over the years. And that's led to me interviewing Andrew Skilleter and and a couple of other artists whose work was... uh, associated with the the exhibition or stuff you'd have bought in the exhibition shop. Doctor Who magazine have had a couple of articles on the exhibitions as well. They the, did the, the 70s last month, they did the 80s this month. Obviously, there is a lot of renewed interest into the exhibitions. I'm talking to you now and I'm actually sitting with the latest copy right next to me. So, yeah, in the, se- in the, in the second one, uh, they've done the sort of 1980s. There are, there's a bit of overlap only in terms of uh, a couple of contributors. So Stuart Glazebrook and Derek Handley, mm. um, I think, have provided oh, yeah. some imagery. Richard, who's written most of the articles, um, has tended to not sort of um, cover the same ground, really. I mean, it, 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 what comes across is it was both about um, Longley and Blackpool together. It's much more similar to the Telos book in in terms of it in this year, this is what you could see. And this year, this is what you could see, you know. And so mm. providing that sort of um, that commentary, um, that timeline, um, giving you a chronological history of, of the place 
I guess what we've tried to do is we've tried to capture hearts and minds and just sort of, you know, explore the, what the experience was like. So anybody who went there and those people who were either too young or not fortunate enough to get there, what did it feel like? We've had so much interest from um, young Doctor Who fans who, who've really enjoyed reading the book. Clayton Hickman read the book. He never went to, to the exhibition in Blackpool, but, you know, he, we've got a quote in the next book uh, from him which says he feels like he has now. He's been there. So it's providing that experience in, in a very visual way way i think you know obviously doctor who magazine's covered a few pages what we've done is a thousand pages and in this one we've we've gone full page with a lot of the images because the quality certainly of the the photographs from the the second exhibition the doctor who museum that ran in the noughties cameras on phones much much uh, better quality than they were in the 70s unless you were rich enough to buy a really nice camera in the 70s 80s so the the, the photographs are just stunning you know and, you, and the lighting's been caught at the right sort of temperature so you, you do feel as though you're walking through those corridors in the second museum that's certainly the feel we've gone for with the second book it's great that the magazine have finally picked up on it and done some stuff on it although it would have been nicer had they done an actual special but you know it's at least it's being featured now and i think anybody who's reading those what might find our book in the process of perhaps looking up afterwards and be able to find a lot more about it you know you think of exhibitions they're very visual things um so if you've got a book that's mainly just reference and, and information you want that sort of visual side to go with it so what we've put out really complements the the telos book and what doctor who magazine have done and I, I really just think fans enjoy reading this sort of thing because you've got generations of fans who can relate to it because they went there and now you've got generations of fans even the younger era who were born after or in towards the end of the second Blackpool exhibition closing, who've grown up into a world of Doctor Who fandom where there aren't even any exhibitions at all. They, you know, they missed out on them all. So this is a chance for them to, to revisit them. Yeah, it's a shame that there's no exhibition going at the moment. I mean, because even when Blackpool was was still an ongoing concern, you had Longley, as you said, down the road, a couple of hundred miles down the road. <laughs> and then when Blackpool closed down, you still had, for a while, had Longley and then Fangothan kicked off as well and I was lucky to go there as well because my family lived down the road so I was quite a regular visitor every time I used to go over and uh, and have a look around there and then Cardiff that uh, closed down with the 2017 as well it's sad that there's actually no ongoing Doctor Who exhibitions uh, at the moment is that again a reflection in terms of how the show is being looked at the moment or is this more of a it's just not commercially viable at the moment, do you think? Well, Madame Two Swords in Blackpool have their doctor experience at the minute. So, you know, there are about half a dozen costumes from um, Jodie Whittaker's stories. There's a waxwork of Jodie and uh, one of the TARDISes is there. So, And that's pretty, you know, and it's a really small um, sort of experience uh, mm. exhibition display. The only person who's kind of carrying the, the torch for the classic series um, is Neil Cole, who's got his classic sci-fi museum up north. And, you know, what, it, what Neil's tried to do, and again, it goes back to his one and only visit to Blackpool when he was about five, it is try and recreate that kind of feeling that he had as a young boy. And he's got some classic pieces that he's been able to get his hands on. And the way that he's just presented it is very, very similar uh, in feeling to Blackpool and Longleat. But of course, so many of the classic props, although the BBC seems to have a handful still in storage somewhere, hopefully, you know, but many of them have gone into private collections. So we'll never mm -hmm. really see the likes of what David Boyle was able to do in the noughties because the, the, the stuff's just all over the place now. Yeah, I think Neil's been lucky because he's um, Mike Tucker lent him 
Broton the Zygon from Terror of the Zygons, um, who's currently on display. And he also he managed to buy the Garm from Terminus, although he needed quite a bit of extensive repair work. And he's got a, a Terraleptil. And I think most recently, after the feature on him in the Doctor Who magazine, he's come into possession of an actual mummy head from Pyramids of Mars. So his wow. collection of, of genuine vintage Who stuff is is increasing. And that's alongside, mm. obviously, a lot of other science fiction film and TV costumes, props and, and memorabilia that he's got on show, um, all in the basement of his own home. So, yeah, like John says, he's sort of carrying the torch at the moment. Um, it's just a shame that the, there isn't a bigger exhibition. But I think the show's popularity at the moment is, is, is one thing, and it's clearly divided the fan base. But also, mm. I think, with the, with the closure of Blackpool in 2009, and we, we know that Bonham's auctioned off so much stuff, presumably it's all, you know, in private collections, but it's people like Neil that are getting hold of them and uh, restoring them and putting them back on public display. Right. He must have a very understanding wife. <laughs> <laughs> He's on YouTube. He talks about that, Mark. I'm actually hoping to visit next month. So I'm, I, if I do, I'll be writing up about it. He's on an episode of a series on Netflix. That's where I first saw it. So he was featured in one of the episodes where he's he's actually clearing out, and it is a really old house, you know, just the old uh, basement. Mm. Trying to realise his vision, his father-in-law is standing next to him as Neil's describing what what he sees in his head, you know. And by the end of the programme, you get to see what he's achieved, which is just incredible. And as Alex says, we, we're desperate to go and have a look at uh, ourselves at this place. Amazing. Amazing Interiors is the name of the program. On That's the amazing one. Interiors. So in terms of the allocation of the work, when putting the, the initial book together and also the uh, content, how, how do you divide the work up between the both of you? And, and, and also, uh, from what I understand, you guys actually never have physically met. Is that right? Thanks to the joys of the internet, how did you establish a working relationship? It just kind of fell together naturally, I think. John is in charge of the actual design of the book, the layout of the book, although I'm actually a graphic designer and illustrator by profession. Um, it's John's project. But what we've done is I would give him feedback or ideas. We'd throw ideas around. I'd suggest things or I'd mock ideas up and say, how about we, we do this sort of thing? Or It's just become a, a very fruitful bit of creative collaboration. Yeah, it's we're a bit like Lennon and McCartney, aren't we? We don't quite know who does what, really. just kind of works. And Alex, you know, not only is an amazing artist and obviously a professional graphic designer, but he's a great writer as well. And so... His articles, um, he'll send me an email and he'll say, just take a look at the attached. I've just gone and written, you know, 500 words on this. What do you think of it? Um, and so I love the way that we're working together, you know, and you're right. We've never met in real life. We've, we've sort of spoken like this and, and over the telephone and stuff. But uh, one day we are going to go back and we're going to go and stand outside Chapel Street um, and maybe even get down those stairs, you know, and it's going to be an amazing day. But un until that happens, I'm really really enjoy working with Alex and I feel quite emotional talking about it really because <laughs> I've said to him a number of times you know it, it was my idea to do it uh, and I remember texting another friend I think it was around April last year and I said I'm going to write a, that book about the Doctor Who exhibitions and he, and he said what are you going to call it and I said Blackpool remembered and I've got someone I think who's going to who's going to help me out and that's sort of how it all started but I he spurs me on he gives me incredible feedback um he, he sees it, it the way I want it to be um and he's just great at getting me to achieve it and together we you know this is our second book and I hope there'll be something else further down the line I do give honest sometimes probably a little bit too brutal feedback but that's obviously all in the um <laughs> with the aim of getting the best 
publication together that we can do, given how we're working and the fact that we're putting together a free digital publication. And I think one of the great things about, I mean, we, we have constant questions, are you going to do a print version? There's always the demand for the physical product, which you can understand. But in addition to things like uh, the copyright can of worms and rights and whatever we'd agreed with contributors' usage, as much as we would love to do a sort of lovely, lavish coffee table type book it's unfeasible now because of the size of, of publication in both cases um, because the new book as john said is a brand new book it's not a revised edition or an extension of the original it's it's a completely new separate thing and it's got even bigger and the lovely thing about working digitally and creating a digital publication is it can be as long as we want it to be there's no production restrictions meaning that oh we can only have so many pages in this section or we've got to cut that bit right down to the paragraph it's just because it's a project by fans for fans and 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 really a labor of love for me and john although john's the one putting all the work into it it's just being able to do it as we wanted and i think that is a positive that's come out of this horrendous and unsettling time that we're all in because we wouldn't have been doing it otherwise he is brutal you know mark i'm just thinking there's reflecting there for a minute about his feedback because what, what i tend to do is I, I i throw everything at it you know so i'll include pretty much all the material that we've got and then alex will send me through pdf notes and it'll be things like how many times do we need to look at this particular ex- exhibit you've put this in five times now you know and it, and it, <laughs> and it does make me laugh too and, it, and that's why it works so well um, he's brutal but he's always right that was mordrin who was on every page for about <laughs> 10 pages i quite liked it i think somebody's got a bit of modern fetish it sounds like it <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking about your uh, when you talk about physical book because i was obviously that, a lot of people are asking that question i was even going to ask that question as well but i mean when you're talking about 600 pages i mean the shipping across to australia alone you know be absolutely astronomical so uh, i think e-distribution is the way to go so when you released the initial book and the reaction to it started coming in what was it like in terms of readers stats and things like that let's talk us about when you pressed that launch button and did you have a, a goal in mind in terms of how many people might read it and- well at that point we'd got a, just a couple of hundred followers on twitter we we told everyone we were going to be releasing at midnight so it was the 28th of august last year and it's the, mm-hmm. the new ones coming out the same date this year but uh we've decided to push it back to 10 a.m because we literally we couldn't go to bed you know it came out at midnight and then twitter seemed to explode for a few hours mm-hmm. people were just absolutely blown away even though they hadn't read the thing they were flicking through it you know on their phones the tablets whatever and and just with their automatic response was just how amazing it was in terms of seeing all the photographs uh, all at one time and the, the pages going through all the different years um, people were sort of choosing the, the, the year that they went uh, and saying oh I, remember, I went to 1979 and I've just looked at that section it's brought back so many memories or you know I remember the shop and I've just looked at the section on the shop and I remember Alison Cross behind the counter and I remember her serving me and buying a Palatoy talking Dalek so all these just incredible human responses you know uh, we're still looking for Alison Cross by the way Mark so if she does listen to your podcast do get in touch Alison because she's the one person we've not tracked down yet the response was amazing Alex will know more about the stats and stuff I think it surprised a lot of people I think when you say oh yeah we're doing an ebook you know a lot of people think oh an ebook that's why I call it a digital publication because it sounds posh. <laughs> mm. more posh doesn't it really <laughs> but it is because an ebook typically is something you read on a kindle and it's mainly just text mm. whereas this is a fully designed full color you know pdf file and I think a lot of people perhaps initially thought 
it wasn't going to be much. When you say, oh, it's going to be free to download, people might think, oh, it's probably just going to be 40 or 50 pages or something. So I think I think we surprised a lot of people with the just how good it looked and the content. It's only as good as the content and the photos mm-hmm. that we got in. And even things like the photos at Julie Jones Centres, which I've never even seen before. Um, mm. We've got a lot of exclusive stuff in there. And that's also been the case again with the second book. I mean, the timing was perfect, wasn't it, for the first release? I mean, most of us in and out of lockdown and things were looking a bit grim. And this wonderful slice of nostalgia gets downloaded to your device. You just start flicking through it and just sort of transport you back to the happy times and places. Sitting outside of my garden, flicking through it on my iPad, this is content. I think I tweeted you guys, so it's an amazing publication because, you know, it was. And um, it was a, a lovely piece of art that we needed during last year, to be perfectly honest with you. That's really kind, Mark. Thank you. I mean, well, you know, it's, it's our love letter uh, to Blackpool, but we, we've just been so blown away by everyone's responses to it because like you you know they've just found so much in it that's taken them back to happy days i mean that's you know ironically that was the name of the the amusements next door to uh to the basement happy days i think a lot of people like doctor who because it offers escape from mm. problems escape from health issues or just escape from the sort of morbid daily realities of stuff you see on the news for all ages you know it, it is you're stepping into another world when you're enjoying the series whatever era of the series you enjoy the most and you consider to yours it's your go-to place and for anyone that got to experience the exhibition that was as real as it could possibly be you know even though i was you know age seven i knew it was costumes and this that and the other but you once you lose yourself in it it just it, it's real it's there you know it's tangible you can smell it and and i think the blackpool remember just brought that back to a lot of people because it hasn't been covered very extensively at all over the years and now people know what to expect from us with this new book so the bar is high but we're i think we're going to live up to expectations blackpool revisited talk us through that quickly it was an empty page it was it was a blank page because it was a brand new publication there's no there's hardly any duplication even in in terms of photographs we've not tried we've tried not to use anything from the first book at all so i guess it was about probably april time again when we seriously started to begin work on it um, and started to think about what the content might be. So there's 10 sections in the new book. A lot of pages are dedicated to that second museum, but it, there's, a, there's a big section that goes back over 90, uh, 1974 to 1985 as well. And then we've gone off at all sorts of tangents. So um, I've done a couple of articles, one on the, the, the history of Blackpool Illuminations and how Doctor Who um, fits in with that. And we've looked mm. at Doctor Who at uh, the Waxworks, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's now a display at Madame Tussauds. Well, we know that in 1980, there was a display in Madame Tussauds in London, but it was a very different display. So we've kind of mentioned that. But then we've got these articles with artists and illustrators. We've got stories in there of people who've been back to Blackpool. Um, Uh, for different reasons so a friend of ours philip brennan went to a convention in a blackpool hotel and met elizabeth slade and so he's written a story about that you know so they're all blackpool related but it's gone much sort of wider and in some cases uh, it's gone a bit deeper with some of the stories that we've wanted to to delve more into i actually asked our listeners for some uh, reminiscences about uh, visiting exhibitions and and things like that i might just read them out to you and and you guys can say, yes, I remember that, or see how it goes. So the first one's from James Whiteside, who said that he went to the uh, Manchester Science Museum in 2007 
remember being blown away by how real life the face of Bo was and had a real presence. Have you ever heard about that one? I remember it. I never went to that one, uh, but mm. uh, it was similar to one that I think was at Spaceport in Liverpool, which I did go to. There were, there were quite a few at the time where it kind of moved around a little bit. I think it was in Leicester at some point. I don't think I've seen Face of Bo, though, in real life. And I, I can imagine that's quite creepy. Me neither. I think the only new series, Modern Who stuff that I saw, was at the, the Up Close exhibition in 2005 at the National Space Centre in Leicester. And that was that was brilliant. Uh, that was a really good day out. But that was obviously just all stuff from Christopher Eccleston's season. I don't think Neil will be getting the Face of Bo in his uh, basement anytime soon, I don't think. He's too bloody big. <laughs> uh, the Mind Probe says uh, he went to an exhibition, he thinks, in 2006. I'm a bit younger than most of your fans. So I was growing up with a new series at the time and I was absolutely in awe. I specifically remember being greeted by the huge absorbable off on the way in and uh, there was a front half of a dial that you could step inside and control. I was also a bit missed because David Tennant had been there a few days ago and my cousin got to meet him and I didn't. And I asked him where the exhibition was and he thinks it was in Bolton. Uh, well, that was, you've got the link there, haven't you, with Peter Kay? So mm. probably it was, was a Bolton um, exhibition. I don't remember that. I did have the pleasure of meeting David Tennant once. My wife likes David Tennant too. To my wife <laughs> at our wedding anniversary to see Hamlet at Stratford. Mm. So she got to watch David on stage for three hours. But then at the interval, we also saw Georgia Tennant. I had five minutes with Georgia Tennant uh, having a chat too. And she was really nice. And they both signed my programme, my Hamlet programme, which has got to be worth something, hasn't it now? Oh, absolutely. JJ says, uh, I got to sit in Bessie at uh, St. Gotham in 1995. Something you're not allowed to do nowadays. I expect you to the age of the car. I was lucky to sit in Bessie as well. And you could just walk up to it and sit in it. Not, last time I saw it was um, 2017. It was just uh, stuck upstairs in the... In Cardiff. I might be breaking a few hearts when I say this, but actually what, what we know is the car that was outside the Doctor experience in Langolan was actually David Boyle's replica. I've written an article on this for the next book and Bessie was actually inside. So uh, lots of people have got photographs outside uh, by what they think is Bessie, but it's actually McGinty. If you've got a photograph inside, then it was definitely Bessie. John, can you hear that? My heart breaking. Yeah. thought that was actually the real thing. You. <laughs> 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 you can read all about it in the next book, Mark. Oh, well, I'll forgive you for that one. <laughs> and uh, Jed Sweeney says, uh, no exhibitions as such, but he did go to Madame Tussauds in London in December 1982, where I recreated a few months in advance of it actually happening. The Five Doctors photo shoot with a Tom Baker dummy, albeit with just two of us. And he saw the Megloss Doctor uh, model there as well. So, Amazing. Um, yeah, we've covered a little yeah. bit of that in the next book. So there are some exclusive... Um, shots of the of those those very uh figures you're talking about that were taken by mike tucker when they were all put in storage um so they're in there and there's a nice story for daniel dresner as well about him going down to london for the first time to see that exhibition hey did david boyle did he used to dress up as colin baker and walk around Sandoklin? he had friends who did he had lots of people who uh, did um, there's a guy yeah. called dr john field it was probably him he lives in blackpool um he used to dress up at langollen and the original exhibition actually i've got a picture of him when i was about 10 and then we've tracked down another guy who's a good impersonator of Colin, and that's uh, Chris Daniel. Next book, he works at the museum uh, right until the, the very last day. So he was there when it all closed down for the very last time. 
Um, uh, but yeah, right. there were quite a few of those guys. Yeah, my uncle remember seeing walking to a pub in Van Gothland and uh, seeing a guy dressed up as Colin Baker having a crafty pint at the <laughs> pub. So uh, I don't think it was Colin just in costume, but it was certainly one of those guys uh, stomping around the area trying to um, drive up trade. And ironically, the little uh, Dalek sign I remember is like a little uh, brown tourist sign with a Dalek on it is actually still up in Flangoughland. I went a few uh, months ago because the site's now um, new housing estate. Mm. Uh, Lower D is, is all brand new houses. And we searched and searched, but I, I was told that very same thing, that it's still there somewhere. I think the the trees and things have o are slightly overgrown now. So um, I love the idea that it's it's still there because that was the one thing as you were driving down into the valley, yeah. you know, you'd spot that. And uh, I used to say to the kids in the back of the car, oh, I can smell Daleks. And that was the point we knew we were nearly there. It's a bit of a Clive Griswold moment, isn't it, really, to be honest? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I did. So, look, it's just Daleks with tears coming down your eyes thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I did take my kids to the Cardiff uh, exhibition. And, um, yeah, my daughter and wife sat in the cafe while my son was nonplussed. I was just walking around going, look at this. This is amazing. Yeah. I still make my annual pilgrimage, although I've yet to do this year's, back to Chapel Street to Blackpool. But, Dad, it's just, it's just a shoe shop. Get over yourself. That's heartbreaking isn't it really that yeah, one of the world's greatest exhibitions is now selling shoes at a discounted rate correct they just don't understand <laughs> i've written a piece on the sevens models that were available in the 80s and also done a piece oh. on dapple uh, which obviously david boyle was was behind so we have got a section on sort of models and toys that's a great link between the first book and this one yeah so jonathan sellers was somebody who contacted uh, me on twitter and he he's Handle on Twitter is not his name, so I didn't know who this person was. He's got some sort of Doctor Who reference in his in his Twitter handle, and uh, so I, we followed each other. And then he sent me a message, and he said, "I, I, I saw your first book, and I read it, and I, I noticed that you'd mentioned the miniature models that were made by a teenager that were on display in 1975, the second year that uh, the, the original exhibition was open." So we got chatting, and and he he then said to me, "Well, they were they were my models. I was the." guy who made them and um i won the designer monster competition it was just incredible so he started to tell me this story and it's it's in the new book um of how law martin went to his house with the prize for winning the designer monster competition he got to go to bbc tv center as well uh, as part of that prize but whilst he was there lawn saw these miniature models that he'd made of you know the the, the console room and uh, a sort of dalek set and these incredible really detailed miniature models of daleks and different um sort of enemies and foes you know alpha centauri and all this kind of stuff and lawn was just blown away and he said can i take these uh to blackpool can we put them on display in the exhibition to which obviously jonathan was absolutely delighted he tells his story in the next book and uh we've got all the photographs of his time on blue peter or his models on blue peter and then right at the end you know it's quite crushing because uh he doesn't even know to this day what happened to the models so they were obviously removed at the end of the season but he never got mm. them back which is just heartbreaking blessing mm. just talk about the sevens daleks yeah because i fondly remember them from the 80s as one of the mm. really really great range of fantastic if tremendously complicated things to to, to assemble. Um, mm. Obviously, the, the very tenuous link back to Blackpool there is you could buy them in the shop uh, during the final years. For myself, as a, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I was a Dalek obsessive, but you couldn't get any toy Daleks back then. So mm -hmm. I was like desperate for a Dalek. And then I eventually got a Sevens model, but of course it was too big to play with, but I finally had a Dalek. Uh, but 
all, all my 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 Dalek needs were finally fulfilled in in the late eighties when when Dapol finally you know released their their, their range of, of figures. So I've sort of had a bit of um, a reflection on on those times, and also with the help of David Boyle's uh, widow Julie, who sent us a lot of previously unseen photographs of the sort of production of the figures and early early prototype shots. We've been able to sort of do a bit of a history as well. So you know that's been nice to to, to do as one of the various sort of non Blackpool bits, but still ultimately related back to Blackpool. One of those prototypes, of course, was the Hoomobile, which, we, again, we've done a, a separate article on. And um, I always felt, you know, it, it was we, I've called it the one that got away because can you imagine if if that had been parked up on Chapel Street and right next to Bessie, the Hoomobile? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've kind of I've tracked it down and um, spoke to a guy who impersonates uh, the third doctor, and we've got some nice bits and pieces related to, to the to the Hoomobile or Alien, as uh, John Pertwee called it himself. Um, so again, you know, it, it's sort of Blackpool related, but it's not specifically Blackpool. And that's the kind of stuff to expect in the next book, really. What happened to the Hoomobile? It's in the hands of a private collector. It occasionally goes on show. Um, mm. I think it was last seen at an event about two years ago now. Obviously, it's not been out of storage during the last um, few months. But uh, yeah, occasionally he does put it on display. It doesn't look any different. I mean, it's it's been really well kept. It's still got a lot of the original features that John wanted uh, mm. it to have. I've got some great photographs of it turning up in a co-op uh, supermarket in the 1970s. John must have been doing uh, a personal event, but some guy's mum took these um, uh, like sort of Polaroid shots of John on the co-op car park. So we put those in the book. You can't help loving the great man. He, he's willing to go anywhere to publicise the show, whether it's Blackpool or the local co-op. It's true. He's, he's all he, about publicity. Absolutely. He turned up at the opening of an envelope. Mark, I'm interested. When you said when you said you spent five minutes in there the first time you went, did you get as far as the shop, or did you sort of go down the TARDIS steps, run around, and then come back up the TARDIS steps out the same way, or did you actually go up the exit staircase where the shop was? So basically, ran down the stairs, whizzed around, went through the shop because I actually remember buying a Tom Baker postcard oh. and a Doctor Who exhibition pencil, and I was always convinced that I actually met Tom Baker, but it wasn't. It was the the footage of him saying, you know, goodbye, which is, I think was on the uh, 30s and the TARDIS DVD. They, they got that footage and put it on the end. So, yeah, I did see the shop. Which, Have you still I got don't them? Know the pencil is. No, uh-huh. unfortunately not. Yeah, what about yourselves? What did you guys get when you went there? Can you remember? So it started off small. I remember the first time I went, um, I've got a handful of badges from the first year. Some of those were sort of um, cast-offs from the previous exhibitions. Actually, one of them is from the Science Museum um exhibition because uh, it's got a sort of 1972 trademark on it and it, and it says something about the, the visual effects exhibition so they must have been selling off a bit of old stock so they were the, and then obviously postcards were a big thing it was pocket money mm. things to begin with but then i realized that it was the only place in the country where you could buy stuff that wasn't readily available anywhere else you know so the target books the poster magazines uh the t-shirts the tardis tuna the dennis fisher figures you know i'd save up all my money uh just to when we went to blackpool and then splurge on all these things that i couldn't buy anywhere else yeah we went twice in the same week to blackpool bought a lot of stuff or my parents bought a lot of stuff for me got a dalek pencil case my best mate um i got all the 
postcards of the doctors and companions and TARDIS, which I still got. Bought the bought a poster of the Dalek anatomy, the Target poster. BBC Space Invaded cassette of all the themes. Doctor Who magazines, Radio Times anniversary special. Load of stuff like that. Fine art castings models. And I think over time. Um, most of the things got, you know, worn out or given away or lost or otherwise vanished from my collection. But during last year, one of the other fans that we connected with along the way, a guy called Simon Horton, turns out he'd got one of the badges that I got the with a neon tube logo on. And I'd got to, somewhere along the way, I'd acquired a diamond logo badge from an, from an exhibition. So we did a badge swap. <laughs> so we've both become two very happy badge-owning fans. I love that. Um, and another bit of exhibition memorabilia that I've managed to get back um, was, say, the Dalek poster, uh, which I loved as a Dalek obsessive. I was always fascinated. But my, my original poster, I remember it falling. Probably by the end of the 80s, it had fallen to pieces. Um, so that was long gone. And I remember in the 90s buying, uh, I think it was one of Peter Haining's books, uh, maybe his last book before he passed away. Uh, I forget what it was called now, but there was a reproduction of this poster in it. So I bought the book just for that. And when I met Steve Camden, who used to operate Canine, um, mm. We met at a convention maybe 20 years ago now, and we've kept in touch ever since. I host a bit of web space for him to advertise his, his really good books from his time on the show. But Steve sent me in one day, sent me in the post, a pristine version of this same poster. So I've been able to get that back. And one of the nice things with the new book is I tracked down the artist who did that and had an interview with him, uh, Graham Potts. So that's been a, another nice full circle moment. And I guess the only last bit of memorabilia from the exhibition that I still own is my Dalek t-shirt or the remnants of. I quickly grew out of it at the time. So I think I cut out the Dalek drawing and stuck it in a photo album. So I've still got the tatty remains of my off-white Dalek t-shirt in my photo album along with the original Blackpool postcard. So there still is some stuff that I can touch that is from the day, which is always a nice thing to have. I love that, Alex. I've got a, a scrap of Peter Davison wallpaper that I could... Why, why in England did we used to cover our school um, exercise books with wallpaper? That, that's odd, isn't it? Anyway, that's what I did with my, my one roll that I was allowed to purchase. I cut a section off, and it's the only section that's, uh, that survived all these years. But I remember one day I was walking out of the exhibition exit staircase. I was just walking as the guy was changing one of the display cases where they'd got, you know, the T-shirts and stuff with the price tags. And he looked at me and he said, do you want this for 50p? And it was the di- it was a black diamond logo t-shirt. Yeah, and the logo was glittery. It was wonderful. It was really oh. nice. Um, so I said, yeah. So you know, found the 50p in my pocket, paid the guy, took it home. And this was going to be my thing that I would treasure forever. And my mum shoved it in the washing machine and it lost oh. all of its glitter and started to peel away. So I've still got it, but it's in a, a real state now. It's terrible. It's a sort of t-shirt you rub into a Sarbman's chest unit, really. And all the glitter just roll <laughs> off and uh, it'll just fall over and a heap, wouldn't it, really? I've actually got those Steve Camden books. I picked those up when I went to St. Gotham, the, uh, the shop there, and uh, I actually got those books. They are very good, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Great. Yeah, he's still selling them. He's a great guy, and as you, as you probably realised, he wrote the foreword for, yeah. for our first book. I've got to say thanks to Steve, actually, because um, obviously he wrote the foreword. I, I sent him a thank you letter, and he responded by sending me a tiny little bit of the brontosaurus that was on display um, from Invasion of the Dinosaurs that was on display in the exhibition in 1974. He'd restored it recently for someone and a little tiny piece had fallen off. So he sent me that. I mean, it's the tiniest crumb, but it is a little bit of Blackpool magic. And I guess I'll treasure it forever. 
So the new book, guys, when's it coming out? And in terms of what people can expect from it, this is actually a whole new tome, the nice complimentary edition to Blackpool, remember? That's correct? Yep, brand new. Alex, do you want to talk about the release date? Uh, yeah, we're putting it out on Saturday the 28th of August at 10am on the website, which is blackpoolremembered7485.wordpress.com, which is a bit of a mouthful. We'll have all the links in our show notes as well. I really hope that it, uh, it deserves to do just as well, in fact, even better than the original one. I, I really appreciate the effort you put into this wonderful labour of love. Oh, it's really kind, Mark, and thank you for having us on the show and being able to talk uh, to yourself and, and let everybody hear about the, the new book that's coming out, and we just hope that, you know, um, everybody's going to really enjoy it, and as I say, you never know, there might be a third one at some point. Uh, maybe not on Blackpool this time, maybe we'll go somewhere else. Where would you go this time, you reckon? Mm. Longley, the early years. Well, we've always said, haven't we, Alex, we never made it there, so we've always had a longing for Longleys, yeah. Oh, there's your title there. <laughs> well, I thank both John and Alex for spending some time talking with us about their fantastic new upcoming publication. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for having us. It's been great. And uh, we'll put all the links to the uh, new publications and the old publications in the show notes as well. But um, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. You take care. You've got mail. We have a overflowing mailbag, Rob, so let's crack it open and uh, read them out. So the first one, Mark, is from Doc Hume, the co-host or the host with the mostest on the Diddly Dumb podcast. And Mark, you apparently made an appearance on episode 148 talking about Frontios. I did. It was great fun, actually. We sort of don't review much on this podcast, but they asked me to nominate a story, mm. and I did. We'll watch the story individually, and uh, yeah, we all got together to talk about it. It was actually a lot of fun. Okay. I think that episode is sort of recorded just after the uh, uh, John Barrowman gate news was coming out ah yes yes well, I did listen to that episode, Mark, and uh, it was a lot of fun to listen to. So clearly all of you had a great deal of fun with that story. Actually, do you want to hear a joke? We have to edit it out later. <laughs> well, we'll see how we go. <laughs> go. What's John Barrowman's favourite character in Bambi? Just to play along, what is <laughs> John Barrowman's favourite character in Bambi? <laughs> Thumper. <laughs> do you want another one? Yeah. Yeah, God almighty, yes, <laughs> please. What do you call a social justice warrior Doctor Who fan with magical powers? What do you call a social justice warrior Doctor Who fan with special powers, Mark? Wokey. <sighs> <laughs> That's better than Wandalf, I suppose, but still. Wandalf. <laughs> <laughs> we digress back onto Doc's letter. Doc says... Dear 42 to Doomsdayers, listening to your alternate Pertwee Years podcast, we loved your riff on our question... Quote, what if Malcolm Hulk had been a member of the British Union of Fascists? And you're coming to the inevitable conclusion that we'd have had five years of the brigade leader instead of the brigadier. So he goes on to say, what sort of Pertwee retrospectives would we be getting from fans now? One, I much preferred the brig in his later softer years when he stopped shooting civil servants and just sent them to concentration camps. <laughs> what are we laughing about concentration camps? Or two... I think that section leader Liz Shaw became a far more interesting character in her Dr. Mengele years. Look up, look up Dr. Mengele on the internet, uh, youngsters. Uh, three, wasn't it an interesting idea to bring in a deputy for the brig in the second season in the character of Camp Commandant Mike Yates? And um, we'll see how we go with this one. And how would the conversation with the doctor have gone when the brig was teaching race theory at that school in Mordred Undead? I'll be the doctor, Mark. Here we go. The doctor. By the way, how's platoon underleader Benton these days? Oh, left the party in 79. Sells second-hand cars somewhere in South America now. Uh, and Harry Sullivan? 
last heard of developing the leader's reprisal weapons of Portland Downs. <laughs> and do you ever see Joe Grant? Ah yes, dreadful business that. Blood as a bat, of course. Tried to shoot herself at the leader's bunker in the final days. Missed and killed his German shepherd. That was very sad. Beautiful animal. <laughs> Joe, Gra- Joe Grant <laughs> is Eva Braun. <laughs> Hey, we could do audio plays coming soon from Happy Finish Productions. Oh, mate. Uh, mate, it, uh, it'd be just as good, I can tell you right now. Yeah, it would be actually. Uh, and Doc concludes with, that would have made a much more memorable five years, we think. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Doc. Bless you, Doc. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it would have been uh, interesting. How dare we laugh at the Nazi references, Mark? It's terrible, isn't it? Speaking of Nazi references, the Omni Rumor, Rob. So, now, speaking of uh, well-received episodes, uh, our... Um, Collecting episode did really well as well, the reaction from that, so thank you everybody. But uh, the last episode we did with uh, Tim from the Missing Episodes podcast really got uh, a bit of a spotlight, didn't it, Rob? It did, and rightfully so, because the Omni Rumour is a fascinating topic, and Tim uh, had some really well-considered and well-reasoned thoughts uh, to provide to our listeners. And then Rob, of course, continued to get excited about this. Mm. He then put out on Twitter on a dark and lonely night. Very lonely. Asking for people to send their thoughts on the Omni Rumour and what they thought at the time and what they think of now. We were sort of inundated, weren't we, Robbie? With uh, all these tweets. Yes, we were. Let's start reading them out. The Watcher 1963 says, like the Olympic ceremony, it's been going on for too long. That is true. But thankfully, I think uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the most popular threads and sites that sort of came up uh, during the Omni Rumour have gradually come to the realisation that uh, there was a lot of misinterpretation and perhaps misinformation, um, not sinister or anything like that, just going around. It's amazing how someone says something to someone else who says something to someone else who says something to someone else and it gets back to the original person who goes, that's validation for my, my, <laughs> my information. I think a lot of that was going on. Sean Kennedy says, sadly, even at the time, I didn't believe it. It's certainly fun to dream and to talk and listen to podcasts. And we did a few, didn't mm. we? So having followed the ME saga for close to 30 years, it just seemed crazy. God, I would have loved to have been wrong. That's true, Mark. And that's why the Omni Rumor casts such a long shadow, because we all want it to be true. We all want the prospect of 10, 20, 30, 50, 97 episodes coming back, because like I so eloquently, I must admit, said uh, years and years ago, missing episodes are the great scar that runs through, you know, fandom or a certain segment of fandom. We'd just love to have that back. Even one episode back would be fantastic, even if it was the Space Pirates part X, whatever. You know, it'd be just a great window on a, a wonderful era. Anyway, our friends at the Doctor Who Show, hello Rob and hello Dave, they tweeted, or I think it was Rob tweeting, surprises can always happen. However, with so many eyes on the prize at present, and over the last decade or so, from people who love to bathe in the glory of a find and yet absolutely nothing turning up, I think the well's dry or next to dry. I try not to think on it. It's probably for the best, actually. <laughs> I was just going to say, they're quite wise words, aren't they, really, Rob? <laughs> they, are, they are. You know what? No one in fandom can do anything to influence the return of missing episodes, so do not lose a second sleep about it. What will be, mm. will be. As Doris Day so eloquently sung, que sera, sera. Cat Scarily Only says, I was highly doubtful for such a large number of episodes will be found together or in such a short period of time. I still believe more episodes will be found, but only a few at a time. Do you think more episodes will be found, Mark? Do you, have, do you think there's the capacity out there that there's... there's the, 
that either collectors or uh, you know a TV station somewhere in the remotest part of the world has got got episodes. Well, there's life, there's hope, Rob. I do think there's some out there that uh, are waiting to be returned. I mean, that uh, Morecambe and Wise one they just found fifty years have been sitting it all off, Rob. It's remarkable how things just turn up. You know, you, you sort of yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually I was uh, visiting my parents and I went into a back shed and all these videotapes of, of shows that I, I'd taped. 20 or 25 years ago were sitting in a couple of boxes in this back shed and I was looking at going oh the Brownlow Medal count from 1997 um, you know it's that's almost 30 years ago I mean it's not surprising that you know recorded material may exist you know 50 50 years ago so and you look at Kaleidoscope they're always announcing stuff that's you know come back you know 95% of it I couldn't give two you know figs about but it does demonstrate that stuff from the 60s uh, you know late 50s and, and, and through the 60s is still capable of being found and uh, surprisingly, regularly announced to the general public. That Morecambe and Wise episode was uh, recorded at the BBC but then shown on ITV. Interesting. Go figure. Stuart Milne responded, It was a really exciting time to be a fan, but it began to get old quick and it's still amazing we still don't have the real story. What I found humorous at the time was the politics of online fandom with different factions on different forums and people entirely invested in the fantasies of people in different countries who claim to know things. The potential of an Easter reveal, etc. Just as a sidebar, dreadnought reveal, Mark. Dreadnought reveal. <laughs> um, hello, Eddie, if you're listening, mate, and you certainly are. <laughs> I think what's interesting is that this whole thing has potentially resulted in genuine leads not being followed up on because of an assumption that they had been looked into already. Maybe one day the truth will come out. But as long as there are all these different players in the game who treat information like it's a state secret, I'm not holding out much hope. Uh, just to harken back to the previous one, I mean, Paul Venezes himself, and you know, riding on his coattails to a bit, Phil Morris said that they believe, or they know, that there are missing episodes of the show uh, with collectors. So from that standpoint, I mean, certainly Paul Venezes has got form, and Phil has returned episodes. So if they say there are four, five, six missing episodes with collectors, then I'm inclined to believe that. But again. You might as well be saying that they're on the on the dark side of the moon for all <laughs> the hope that we've got to see see them uh, anytime soon. Uh, Richard Smith on the Something Who podcast said, "I followed the uh, Doctor Who missing episode saga ever since I read the making of Doctor Who at about 1977." And Terence Dix explained that not all the stories had survived. It was great when episodes turned up from time to time, but I always thought the search lacked rigor. Yeah, he's right. Actually, it was just a little waiting for things to sort of come back, weren't they? Really, as opposed to getting things happening. That's not to say that I was prepared to do anything about it. I always felt that boots on the ground search could yield some finds. So while stories of a massive find in Africa sounded rather too good to be true, it did have some degree of plausibility. I remember sitting in my backyard after work thinking about 90 episodes having been found and being almost overwhelmed by the enormity of the possibility. I also recall the thrill of when Radio Time site confirmed the Web of Fear and Enemy of the World return. What a day. Yeah, it was a good day, actually. Well, you know, from that Sunday going forward, Mark, you, you, there was a, an article, I think, in the, um, it was the News of the World or the Daily Mail about the possibility that you know, dozens of episodes have been found in Ethiopia, and that obviously misinterpretation of something. But that entire week um, was really, you know, I just sat on the forums. It was really amazing how little work I got done. But the- <laughs> I thought you said, and I had to go and sit in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> or how how little sleep I got. I remember going to bed at four o'clock on the night of the announcement in the morning, and um, 
Yeah, it was a great day. Great day. Hunched over your keyboard, keep pressing F5 for any tantalising updates. F5 is my friend, yes. <laughs> Being part of the forum scene on Gallifrey Base due to my interest in the Omni, Omni Runa reawakened my involvement in fandom. Led me to meet Tim, Paul and Giles to the podcast and to humorous writing too. So I'll never see it as a malign influence, uh, but I wasted a lot of time, so did Rob. I was at the BFI where Morris promised to light the blue touch paper and I chatted with him after. I fully expected more to follow that year, and when it didn't, I had to conclude there was nothing else coming. I'm still interested in missing episodes, but the Omni rumor is D-E-A-D, dead. Yeah, I think Richard's on the money there. Insofar as the Omni rumor is identified with Phil Morris's search, um, I don't think that there's more to come, really. I mean, I've, I've been off that wagon since, was it the beginning of this year? I you know, said that I was that was it for me. Anyway, a year or two years, probably two years, actually, it just doesn't feel like that there's anything coming back because there's nothing from, from Morris. It, it just, no, it doesn't make sense anymore. And again, as I said earlier, I think it was rumours being inflated and inflated and inflated and people getting caught up in that whole thing. And, you know, I, I don't think the principal people who were uh, relaying information were malicious or malign. I certainly don't believe that. But I think that the information that they were given, it, it's just never panned out, really. It, I mean, two-thirds of it did, but the rest of it, no. I mean, look, if anything was going to come back, the perfect time would have been now with the Web yep. of Fear DVD. Yep. If he had had it, it handed over episode three, it would have been yep. all over. But uh, no, I'm afraid we've got to put up with that um, very interesting animation. Deets74 writes, Always felt that the Omni was never based on any reality and more a combination of desire and confusion based on threads being woven together to make a whole. Given the history of Returns, it's more likely that there's a couple in private hands than there's more episodes uh, sitting around in Joss. Or places like that. I think the the search is over, isn't it? Look, Mark, even without COVID sort of inhibiting the ability of people to travel around, I think it yeah. was, you know, sort of any any sort of international searches was well and truly over by then. Hayden Gribble from the Deadly Dumb podcast uh, says, says, I've hinted at this in my book, Child at a Time, but at the time I was working on a Dad's Army book, which allowed me access to high-profile people at the BFI. He told me that there were potentially thousands of film cans being returned from abroad, having been told that who was coming back by a prominent fan in April and my meeting at the BFI occurred in the June. I really believed then that there was a mother load of Doctor Who coming back. The nine we got always seemed like the start and as Tim says on the podcast even people in a no scene to have bought into the promise that never really came. Sad really as I always felt there were more out there. Not much but a little and I've always felt that everyone was sold a bit of a lie and we all fell for it when it came to the Omni Rumor. Everyone. It's interesting that certainly at um, a high level at you know an organisation like the BFI they certainly did believe that things were happening. I mean, there was those, were those, it was it emails from um, Dick Fitty, which seemed to indicate his belief that there were, you know, thousands coming back. I mean, I remember there was an interview that uh, Gareth Kavana uh, had with a person who was representing Phil at the October uh, uh, news conference in 2013, and he said. In, in that interview that there were hundreds of film cans that they were processing so I mean that is the closest I think we've ever really come to sort of having an, a look into Phil's operation in terms of uh, the size of it um, and in, in, in Fiddy's emails there was I think there was talk of thousands forgive me if I'm wrong of film cans there was that sea rates thing where there was like was it three tons or ten tons of film, can, film cans being shipped back so I mean yes. at that level there was definitely the impression that the operation was dealing in a substantial amount of film prints or maybe even videotapes uh, from overseas. But we don't know what's happened to them. 
we, you know, I mean, there was sufficient information there to convince people in high places that something was going on, that, you know, there was an expectation of large-scale returns. But what has happened with them, you know? I mean, I don't, we, none of us want to know mm. the ins and outs, the gory details, the bookwork for Phil's operation. We're just really interested and keen to understand what did he find and where, how much of it was previously missing, and even just for historical purposes, what did you find that currently, you know, that still exists? Um, and then what happened to it? But at the moment, he won't mm. talk. You can get him. You can get him on, and he won't talk about it, or he'll dodge around it, or he'll give you a, a motherhood statement and just leave it at that. And you know, the people who are interviewing him are fans like us, and they're not willing to press him too hard. And that's that's understandable because none of us are journalists, and it's not really our job to you know to put the thumb screws on him and, and give him a good you know squeeze. But we're prey or not prey we're we're you know we're at his mercy in a sense to find out what went on i don't think the omni rumor the omni rumor is clearly not true but it'd just be interesting to you know from a historical perspective what did he find and what's happened to it since or what did he find and what was not salvageable but just a proper accounting of what went on i mean i don't know, need to know yeah. the debit and, and, and credit entries on his you know his ledgers I don't need to know the balance from day to day of his, you know, bank accounts, the payments that he got from the BBC or any other, you know, third parties that he, you know, he worked with in regards to searching for stuff. I'm not interested in that. All I'm interested in is what did you find, what happened to it, and you know, tell us your story, Phil, because it's you're an engaging speaker. You've got a fantastic story to tell. You've only told part of it. You know, there's an open invitation to come on this podcast. And and have a have a decent you know realistic chat about your adventures and work finding missing episodes and again I'll put the call out anytime anywhere we're willing to have a chat to you Phil let's make magic let's make it happen mate but until then people are gonna cast aspersions and cast rumors or throw up rumors about what he did he's the master of his own you know domain as as it were tell us what happened and come on the show and we'll uh, give you a fair hearing at blob 80 so from 2013 to 15 i was a true omni believer with a reported rumor of 90 episodes recovered as time went on i began to lower my expectations the whole thing all hinged on morris who only ever said things like the wind is blowing in the right direction when i read that the morris interview where he revealed that the web affair 3 uh, had been stolen that was a turning point for me I went from expecting 90 from him to one, which is the Web of Three Part Three. So as of today, I hear the rumours that there are five missing episodes in private hands in the UK, and there is still a possibility that Morris is more, but as time goes on, it becomes more unlikely. I personally expect nothing, so then if we get uh, something, that would be real. Yeah, that's. I think that's the safest place to be, isn't it, Mark? I think that should be the motto now going forward, shouldn't it, uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, and just to wrap it up, two final ones here. Uh, at Juggling Jelly, which is a great Twitter handle, Ah, uh, them were the days. I was a young missing episode virgin who got told about uh, Phil Morris and, uh, and Mew. That was uh, Marco, Enemy and Webb. What a ride that was. A virgin having a ride. Interesting. The joy of the return <laughs> matches the disappointment. Nothing else was true. Look, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with what we got. You've got to be realistic. It's great. Hmm. As a result, that Enemy of the World got reevaluated from uh, boring to uh, a near classic. Yeah. Enemy's really good, isn't it, Mark? It's really good. It is really good. Even the episode three, everybody thought was boring as bollocks on the Trout and Years tape. Actually, you know, in the context of the other episodes, works really, really well. It does. So, it and Web Affair just confirmed it was a downright classic. Mm. And uh, in the Series 5 polls, in my opinion, Ice Warriors is well at the bottom. I think so. And? Last one is from Gareth, who says very profoundly, I found it all very exciting, and now I am very, very tired. Yes. 
sums it up beautifully, doesn't it, Rob? <laughs> it certainly does, Mark. It certainly does. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next episode, we'll be doing our uh, drag from the archives, looking at the year 1981. We'll be debuting the new format of that. We also will be back with some other episodes, our top five master stories, and our Christmas party as well. Very good. I'm, uh, well, possible, you know new casting announcement possible return of missing episodes another time lord victorious to just kick around the room um so there's all sorts of things that we can do mark <laughs> what was that about still i still have no ideas apart from buying lots of tat you know <laughs> oh jesus christ as i said if you need a map to work it out then game over isn't it really? the show's not on television just yet i believe it's coming out in later on this year but there's plenty in the world of doctor who to keep uh you, our, our delightful listeners, and us, your equally delightful hosts, are busy. So, you know, there's a, a few things we're doing for, uh, towards the end of the year, Mark, that I'm really looking forward to. And thanks again to John and Alex from the Black Bull Remembered Project. Really enjoyed chatting to you guys. And I'll put links in the uh, show notes in terms of where you can download the latest edition of this fantastic publication. Well worth the read. Yes, thank you. And until next time, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon welcome back to australia's longest running doctor who podcast 42 to doomsday i'm rob and he's mark Uh, Mark. no what (laughs) sorry oh yes that's right that's right sorry all right we'll do it again we'll do it again (laughs) i'll just say it i'm mark okay so more steel anthony more steel three Three, two two, one. one